I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Online podcast. Woo-wee, man, tell you what, man, been down in the bayou today talking to Mr. Dr. Cobb. Dr. Cobb is my guest of the day, and it was so, so fun getting to talk to him. Are you noticing a pattern that I'm so excited to talk to all these people? It's because I have the most tremendous guests on this show, and it is just a hoot getting to pick their brains. In this episode, Dr. Cobb, the founder of Z Health and a fantastic human in general, he chatted to me about how to get strong instantly, chatted about the impact of the tone of our voice on how we feel and how we can think better in order to improve our movement and vice versa. Where does pain live in our body? What a fascinating question. What the heck is pain? We get into all that in this conversation and it was such a pleasure to get to doctor the good doctor about his perspectives on the topic there were cracks kind of in all of our healthcare systems where people were constantly falling through um, so one of the hallmarks of what I teach is this whole idea of that exercise is a drug if someone comes into me and they're complaining of back pain there may be 30 or 40 different threats that are filling their threat bucket or stressors that are filling their stress bucket. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this episode. And when you get done, I greatly appreciate in advance your comments and your shares. The world needs to hear this information and it is up to you and up to me and up to us to spread this stuff. When you get done, if you'd like to hear more about Dr. Cobb, hear more about these topics or delve a little bit more into the mind of Align Therapy, my business, you can check out aligntherapy.com. That's A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you will find hundreds of absolutely free videos on functional movement, functional lifestyle choices, and how to do random stuff like get strong instantly. I mentioned that. Make kimchi and various fermented foods and all sorts of fun stuff that's going to make you a better person right now. I have a blog that I pour my heart and my soul into. I have online courses. I offer online coaching on how to develop your movement practice and general questions back and forth. We can do live chats and really break down whatever barriers you have in your life, physically hopefully, but then of course it spans into emotional, all that stuff as well, but we focus on the physical more here. We'll work with it. Check it out. I know that you're going to enjoy it. I'm sure there's more stuff on the site that I'm forgetting to mention, but that's okay. Aligntherapy.com. Here is the good Dr. Cobb. Here we go. Podcast. So, Dr. Cobb, thank you so much for coming on. I'm so stoked to get to chat with you. Uh, I've been checking out your website, checking out your videos, and I'm super intrigued. And I'm eager to learn more about it. Uh, I wanted to get started with uh, listeners that may not know your name yet. What's your background? What's your message? What are you? What are you? What are you doing? <laughs> uh, so, I'm Eric Cobb. I founded Z Health in 2003. Um, my background is kind of diverse. I was. Uh, a high-level athlete in a couple different sports. I started off, uh, well, I was a nationally ranked tennis player and uh, been a martial artist my whole life uh, at a pretty high level. And so because of my athletic background, I also had a lot of weird pain issues. 
uh, growing up and through my athletic career. So I wound up going to chiropractic college in an effort to try and fix a lot of those issues um, and also become a better athlete. So I've always had this kind of fixation on what is it that makes people move better? What is it that gets you out of pain? Are they the same thing? Are they different? Uh, and what I found once I got out into the real world of working you know, in practice, working with real people, was that there was this huge... Um, there were cracks kind of in the, all of our healthcare systems where people were constantly falling through. Um, and I understood a lot about the musculoskeletal system. Uh, and even as a, as a DC, you think that you know a lot about the neuromusculoskeletal system. But I really took a deep dive into neuroscience starting in uh, the late 90s and started to realize that there were some huge uh, as I said, gaps in my knowledge base. Uh, and Z Health, which is a system that uh, came out of all that, is, a, is basically an ongoing, evolving attempt to fill in those cracks. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of my story, is what we do. Uh, the way that I talk about this, we're primarily an education company. We spend a ton of time working with uh, personal trainers, therapists, physical therapists, doctors. And our main message is that the world really needs, needs to make a shift to brain-based fitness. Mm -hmm. um, because everyone, I, the, the joke I always make in my classes is that everyone that works with the human body is practicing neurology. Just a lot of times it's being practiced accidentally. Right. Uh, so right. we're trying to be more specific in, in understanding what's going on so that we can deliver something better to clients. Awesome. And so when you're speaking about neurology, are you thinking, is, is your practice more like, you know, cross crawl type stuff or is it more, um, you know, s s linguistics or is it more like, what's, what does a session with you look like? Um, <laughs> so everything that I do is based in the physical, uh, because one of the things that, uh, I tell people is, you know, ultimately we have a brain because our, the reason we have a brain is so that we can enact our will in the world and the way that we enact our will in the world is through movement. And so, uh, what we do is we have a very in-depth viewpoint on movement. We look at the neurology of movement. Uh, and so a typical session with me or as a health trainer would involve looking at the eyes because the visual system plays a huge role in, in movement, looking at the vestibular system because the eyes and the inner ear have to communicate with one another. They also have to orient you appropriately, reflexively against gravity. And then we go into the joints, tendons, ligaments, nerves, all those stuff that uh, in general you would think about when you look at movement practice. So for some clients that involves a lot of basic uh, very precise joint mobility work for other people it's visual exercises others it's inner ear stuff and then for athletes it may be anything from strength training to speed training to uh, technical correction of, of uh, you know some of their movement patterns is there any way for listeners to determine for themselves whether they have a vestibular deficiency or a visual deficiency or a motor deficiency or I, mean, I guess it's all kind of motor but like movement deficiency how do you figure that out in yourself so that's a really good question. We have um, so the first place I point people to this because I get asked this question a lot. Uh, I was asked this question for years, and I finally created a couple of products um, that that show you how to do self evaluation. Uh, but most people don't even need that. I mean, very simply put, if you look at your visual system, uh, obviously, if you're you know most people think that past forty, your eyes are going to degrade. You need glasses. You need contacts. So if you already have an acuity issue, you know that there's something going, going on with the visual system. Um, and the, the hard part about talking about the eyes is there's really four primary categories of things you look at. Number one is how well do you see, so visual acuity. The second one is how well do your eyes move. Uh, so kind of an easy way to evaluate that is try and do full range uh, you know, eye circles or 
Uh, we talk about you know draw a big H and follow a pin, and you're basically trying to see how number one strong your eye muscles are and how quickly they fatigue. So if you're five seconds into a big eye circle and your eyes are feeling fatigued and burning, you probably need to do some movement work there. So you have, uh, like I said, acuity, then you have eye movement. Um, from there, we talk about peripheral awareness and how well you can see what you're not looking at. And in general, if you're out walking and you find yourself that you're constantly needing to look at the ground because you feel a little off balance, you may have some decrease in your peripheral fields. Uh, and then finally, uh, the question we're always asking people is, you know, how well do you judge depth? And that one's a little bit more difficult to understand without some, some testing. Uh, but most people, if you ask them, yes, they have good depth, they have okay depth perception, but a lot of people can notice that their depth perception is a, has some blurriness to it. So those are really the four, four basic categories of stuff that you want to look at or think about. Um, and uh, then from there, you asked about the, the vestibular system. That one is a lot more, com it's not more complex, but uh, some basics that I would ask you about would be number one, do you have any, you know, do you have any history of vertigo? Do you get motion sickness? Do car rides bug you? Um, so those are kind of some basic history questions. If you've ever been knocked out, there's probably a pretty good, uh, pretty good, uh, likelihood that you have some kind of vestibular issue. We see, we work with a lot of people that have had, you know, mild traumatic brain injuries. Um, so concussion in the history, kind of more advanced stuff with uh, inner ear. If you have any kind of classic ongoing postural deficits or back pain that are not, that don't seem to resolve whenever you're doing, you know, other stuff in the gym or other kind of physical therapy work, chiropractic work, that's a, usually a really good evidence for me that the vestibular system's involved because the vestibular system or inner ear is supposed to reflexively help you control posture. And, con and so if you have a weakness, you'll see, uh, you know, excess curvature. So people with kind of hunchback, hyperkyphosis. Uh, and in some, there's actually a movement right now in the neuroscience world to look at scoliosis, which a lot of people are familiar with as curvature of the spine as a primarily vestibular disease. Uh, so those are all kind of things that I can tell you to look at. Um, and then as far as the movement system, again, I have a ton of different assessments in that. But at a basic level, by the, what I tell people is that you should be able to take every joint in your body, whatever it is, and create good full circles at every joint with control. No shaking, no inability to coordinate it well. Um, and if you, can, if you can do that, it shows pretty good evidence that your, your brain's okay. Awesome. So those are those are some stuff to start with. Cool. Yeah. So I think it's the reason I wanted, I was so excited to chat with you is because I love when folks start thinking outside of the box. You know, it's like, oh my my you know my thoracic spine, my back hurts, whatever. It's like, oh, it must be something in your vertebra. Likely not, maybe, you know, but there's, there's so many other possibilities with that, you know? And so, yeah. you know, our, our pain pathways and our motor pathways, they're sharing pathways, you know, so we can, the, the potential of your pain being in your liver manifesting in your spine, that's possible. You know, when we start thinking about that stuff, it's like, oh my God, what is that? You know, it's like, it's real. You know, it's not a sci-fi film. Like your body is fascinating. Get into it. You know, and so one of the things that I think is just so great is looking at it from more of that genuinely holistic perspective. And I'm curious, you know, if 
One of the things you talk about that I think is really, really cool, and I've actually been borrowing it, is uh, the stress bucket. Once I once I heard you mention stress bucket, I think I saw on your site, I was like, boom, stress bucket. I love it. So I started using that with all my clients with reference to you, of course, and telling them to check out your stuff. Um, but so how does that relate? You know, how does all these different potential stressors in our life, be it positive or negative or, or, or physical or vestibular or whatever it is, how do all these stressors start to add up and manifest as sensations in our body? Awesome. Uh, so that may be the most important question you ever ask and that any of us can ever answer. Like this is a, this is a really big deal. Um, and this is one of the reasons that uh, I love connecting emerging neuroscience with real people. So let me start with some basics on this because this is, as I said, it's super important. Um, number one, it relates back to what you said. When people experience pain, um, most people in the world are still operating with what we call kind of a Cartesian model of pain, which is, I feel pain, there must be something broken there. Right. right. So I have I have back pain. Oh my gosh! I go to the doctor. He says, "Look, we did an MRI. You have a herniated disc. That must be the cause of the pain." But population study after study shows us that 80% of the population have herniated disc and everything else, and they're fine. So I tell people all the time that our information, our technology, has outstripped our education. Mm. Basically, we can see more stuff than we understand right now. Um, so that's one thing. Second thing that I try and get everyone to recognize or realize is that pain by, by definition is not a bad thing. It is actually an action signal though. Um, and so we tell people in our, you know, everyone I work with, all of our students, we say, listen, pain does not equal injury. That's one of the most important things that you can wrap your head around. Because most people think, how it hurts, something must be broken, and that actually is not the way your brain works. Um, so. The model that we use and teach is what we call the stress bucket or the threat bucket. And in essence, uh, because your brain is primarily a survival-based organ, its only real job is to keep you alive through the day. It doesn't care about 20 years from now, like your conscious brain does, but what we call your first brain, your old brain, doesn't. It's just like, hey, how do we get through the day? Um, and so what, what it does is it's constantly collecting information from inside your body, from outside your body. And the first filter that all the information collected is run through is how dangerous is it? So, you know, whenever we talk about movement, people say, why do I need to work on my ankle? Why do I need to work on my knee? Well, the point is that if you can't really, if your brain doesn't really know where your foot or knee is in space, that's actually a threat because it's not exactly sure what's going to happen when you take your next step. So that's going to raise your threat level a little bit. And then you had that concussion two years ago and no one ever reevaluated your vestibular system. So now you have that threat. And then uh, your eyes are deteriorating. So now you need glasses and you went to bifocals and those are kind of messing up your vision when you're walking versus when you're, you know, uh, trying to read. So there's another threat. And then you have uh, stress at home. Kid gets sick. Another threat. So ultimately what we see is that once your threat levels reach a certain critical mass, which is different for everybody based off how you're sleeping and your mindset and your education and your movement, etc. But once you reach a critical threshold, your brain now creates an output. That output is protective in nature. And that the output that is usually first chosen is pain, because pain is one of the very first things that will get you to alter your behavior. So whenever, you know, what I tell people is that when you're having pain, that's your, your brain's way of saying, I need you to stop doing something. Unfortunately, it's not really telling you what to stop doing. 
It's just saying, I'm unhappy about work or life or how you're moving, your eyes. Uh, but the cool part about that is that for, and this is again, just basic neurology for me now, if someone comes into me and they're complaining of back pain, there may be 30 or 40 different threats that are filling their threat bucket or stressors that are filling their stress bucket. I don't have to get rid of all of them. All that I have to do is identify one, two, three that lower the total stress load below the output level. And all of a sudden they're like, oh man, my back feels a ton better. So, and again, this is, it sounds a little weird to people when they first hear it, but this isn't just our concept. This is actually really the emerging viewpoint of pain researchers around the world. Uh, and so it's, uh, as I said, it's a super important question. And once people wrap their head around it, pain takes on a very different meaning, uh, which ultimately I think is very preventative in nature. Awesome. Yeah. So I am very visual with the way that I learn things. And so when, when you're talking about this stuff, I'm kind of like visualizing like a stone dropping into a pool, right? And that stone creates ripples, right? So that, that individual stone, that is you, that is a clean version of yourself. That is a blank canvas, right? And then as soon as we start to add all these different variations of stressors into our life, be it our taxes, our boss, our car, our dog pooping on the carpet, our marriage, you know, whatever it is, that's like we're throwing all these other little pebbles into yep. that what once was this clean signal of rippling out, right? And so then what that is in ourselves, it's like we kind of, it kind of like blurs our perception of who we are because we have all these nonsense stressors in our life that end up, you know, and we fear what we don't understand. So when we're sending these, these kooky messages throughout our system of like, we have this stress coming this way, that stress coming that way, you know, my, my stomach hurts for this reason or whatever it is, it's, we end up getting so saturated with this static it only makes sense that at some point there's going to be some degree of malfunction in that system or some degree of signaling, you know, our body's going to shoot up a flare, you know, it's right. like there's something happening somewhere, you know? And so I think the smartest thing that we can do is kind of like what you're saying is slowly start to diminish those stressors, you know, and, and you know, it's Ida P. Rolf, you know, she's one of the folks that I end up, you know, learning a lot from, not individually, but from her, her, her text and all that. Um, one of the things she says, you know, we work with the body because it's what we can get our hands on, you know, but she saw it well beyond that. You know, she was a pretty, you know, some people would consider her to be an out there lady, but she was also extremely brilliant, you know, but getting our hands on that body from there, you start to be able to change or, or start to eliminate some potential stressors and start to develop those, the, the, the purity of the ripples. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Is that an okay analogy? And yeah, so, absolutely. So one of the things I wanted to chat with you about is how our clarity of mind could impact physical pain in our body. One of the things that I, I again, I was, I, was, I was digging into your site, which I think is great. Everybody should check it out right now. Is it zhealth.com or how's it called? It's uh, zhealtheducation. zhealtheducation.com, super fun site, great videos. And uh, one of the things that I was checking out was how our, our, our concentration can impact pain stimulus in our body. You know, it's like, you know, our, our perception of what pain is, is very fascinating. I don't think there's too many people that really know what pain is. Some people say they do. I don't think anybody does. Maybe you do, <laughs> you know, but how, is there any like tips or techniques or tricks that people can utilize in order to purify their ripples, you know, and start to start to clean up their signals in their body. So they actually get actual signals as, as what's happening as opposed to receiving blurry static information from 30 years ago. Interesting. Um, so again, another cool question. And 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to reference a part of the brain, um, and I'll, I'll talk about why this is. So there's a part of the brain called the insula, or insular cortex. And as far as we can tell from current research, this part of the brain is involved in what's called interoceptive awareness. Interoceptive awareness, which basically means your self-awareness. Uh, it notices, now interesting, uh, interestingly about that, the insula also contains a couple of other structures. Uh, one is what's called the homunculus, or the map, if you will, of your gut, which is one of the reasons when people have so much anxiety or they're like they're feeling displaced in the world, they're feeling uncomfortable, they often feel it in their gut. Um, and the other thing that lives there that uh, we talk a lot about is what's called the vestibular association cortices, which means that your internal awareness is very much associated with kind of your ability to place yourself in the world. Um, so whenever we talk about things like concentration and how, in, how maybe meditative practices or concentrative practices can change pain processing and can, in essence, clear up some of these, the static and the ripple that you're talking about, what we're actually looking for is an insula or an insular cortex that has the ability to more accurately judge what's coming in. Um, and there's, there's some really cool studies on this done by a group out in uh, California where they took um, Ironman triathletes and Navy SEALs and then kind of average folks and they looked at their brains under stress. Uh, and what they figured out was that the, the Navy SEALs and the triathletes had uh, an insular cortex that gave better information, clearer information. So while, yes, they were under stress and maybe their training was painful, their brain was giving them very clear information as opposed to this jumble uh, of stuff that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I do um, with clients quite regularly is I try and get them to move towards some kind of concentration practice. Now, there, that can take a, a bunch of different routes, and you know, some people say, hey, I've tried meditation, I've tried this, I've tried that, and I didn't like it. That's all perfectly fine. It doesn't really matter to me, um, because ultimately what we're trying to get people to do is relearn the ability to focus. So one of the things that, uh, again, we look at, just basic neuroscience stuff, uh, is whenever people are listening to their own heartbeat, like if you can get to the point that you can pay attention to your own heartbeat, we typically will see increased activation in the insula. So I actually start a lot of my clients with something really basic. I'm like, sit for one minute, either take your pulse or just see if you can tune in, feel your own heartbeat at the same time. That is actually, believe it or not, an amazing starting practice for a lot of people to start to break up some of these uh, the static that you're discussing. Awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. And along alongside that, one of the things I think is is pretty interesting. And speaking of the homunculus or like the the, the map of your body and your brain, um, one of the things, one of the, the aspects of this homunculus, which is one of my favorite words to say, by the way. So thanks for bringing that up. Uh, but but the, there's a large space percented and or, or 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 given to the tongue and the mouth and the face, and then we have the, you know our hands and our thumbs. It's very interesting how we divvy up this real estate in our mind or in our brain to, yeah. you know, our, our, our physical body. And so one of the things that I think is fascinating is, you know, sometimes when you're walking down the street and you look at somebody and they just have like this face, you know, this like, oh man, like they found out they're like, you know, their, their cat died this morning or whatever. It's just like, they always have my cat died face on. And it's just like, that's your training cat died face into your body. You're sending that signal into your brain that, you know, something bad happened. 
you know, and I think it's very interesting. And then we see that face end up popping up in places like, you know, maybe like the gym. And then the gym, it's a much more higher degree of that. But, you know, we get like this like smushed up bulldog face when we're picking up something heavy. You know, what is the impact of how we carry our face musculature, our scalp musculature, our jaw musculature, our neck on our potential pain in our body and also just the way that we feel in general, the way that we perceive ourselves, the way that people perceive us, that, that feedback loop. Like, what, what is that? Cool. Um, again, neat question. So, yeah, when we look at the homuncular representation in the brain, like you said, we've got a huge face, huge hands, lots of brain space devoted both to the sensation from those areas and also to the movement of those areas. So we actually have two different homunculi. We've got a sensory one and a motor one. And so whenever we see people that are constantly holding a ton of tension, um, I always refer back to, in, in fit basic physiology, it's called the SED principle, which is specific adaptation to impose demand. And you said it perfectly. If they're walking around with that face all the time, they're telling their brain that, that life is, is, in essence, tension producing. It's tension causing. Uh, and so they're myelinating those pathways to hold excessive amounts of tension. Uh, whenever you hold a lot of tension in the face, in the jaw, in the neck, uh, it's going to have body-wide ramifications because um, when you look at kind of the neural structure here, what you're usually going to see is that especially the, the facial muscles, which is and uh, in, in muscles of the jaw, those come from, uh, I'll just put it this way, the nerves come from the brainstem and in the brainstem area is also hosted a lot of very uh, important other uh, resources or other information. So usually what you see with people that carry tremendous amounts of face and neck tension and jaw tension, over time it impacts on their spine, it impacts their breathing, uh, and once you start messing around with the spine and with breathing, you now are setting a stage to have a host of other issues in the body uh, from different disease processes developing, a lot of gut issues. Uh, so one of the things we do a lot, people come to us, they have gut issues, one of the first places we evaluate, face, jaw, tongue, uh, neck uh, because of uh, the impact on the uh, what's called the vagus nerve. So it's, it's funny that you bring it up because I talk a lot about it in the basic gym setting is I tell people, hey, avoid the pain face, whatever you're lifting. Uh, and very often people say stuff like, well, you know, but it's hard. And I'm like, well, if you train with the idea of staying as relaxed as possible, even under this really difficult circumstance, you're emulating what elite athletes do. And they say, well, what do you mean? I say, well, what's the hallmark of elite athleticism? Like, what did great athletes, what do they look like? They say, well, they make stuff look easy. Right. Exactly. And so then the question I present to them is, how do you ever expect it to look easy if you always practice making it look hard? Right? And so whenever we have people that are constantly wearing that strain, pain, stress face all the time, they're practicing making life look hard, whatever it is that they're doing. Uh, and so... They're, they're actually physically training their brain and, as I said, myelinating pathways to make all their, all their future efforts a little harder. Mm. And then another thing that I, I, along with that, that it's maybe not, it's all kind of along with, with everything, but our movement map in our body, something that, I, that I've, I've read you or heard you or whatever, I've, at some point you, you brought it up, is when we get an injury in our body, we end up kind of like scrambling the signal around that space. You know, it's almost like a protective mechanism. Then we end up bracing that area. You know, we, we don't have the same degree of sophistication through that area to, to move, to articulate. You know, I think it's really, really interesting. I want to hear you speak specifically of that. But along with that is like, 
I think that there's those blurry areas through all throughout our brain and all throughout our body and it may or may not be producing pain, but it is impairing your ability to be yourself, to, to express the optimal version of you, you know, and that's what I think it's like we all start off this kind of like this blank slate, you know, and then from there we start building, 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 building. But so many people, we end up getting so wrapped up in this just like hunched forward subservient position where we sit at our desk and our bodies start telling us that like, you suck, you're losing, <laughs> stop sucking. <laughs> you know, it's like, I think that people need to explore, broaden their movement map. You know, and what that is, what that ends up looking like is get funky, you know, like move yourself in very abstract positions, explore the posterior side of your shoulder girdle. What is that? You know, like, do you even know what lies between your shoulder blades? Do you know where your shoulder blades are? Do you know what your pelvis looks like? You know, like these are right. questions that everyone should know, you know, and if yes. you do not, there is a serious sensory blur in your brain and in your body, and there is still so much to build, which is just fantastic news. You know, this isn't fire and brimstone. This is fantastic. It means wherever you're at, very likely, you could be exponentially more phenomenal version of yourself. You know, so the thing that I'm curious about with you is the initial question, which was uh, the injuries and how we can end up carrying these injuries for so long. And they'll impede our ability to move through that space, which impedes our ability to communicate and integrate through the rest of our system. Cool. So basics, uh, let's say I go out, I go for a run, I trip and fall, land on my knee, uh, have a big swelling, whatever. What happens anytime we have an injury is remember your brain's oriented towards survival. So the very first thing it's gonna do, is gonna give you some pain, uh, it's probably gonna create some swelling, Yes, there's a healing process, but basically your brain's going, you know what, you just injured that area, so don't overmove it yet, dude. Um, so unfortunately, what happens for most people is uh, whenever we go through our quote-unquote rehab, whatever that is, for a lot of people it's just walk it off, right? Hope for the best. Uh, and then other people see a professional who maybe look at it and go, you know what, you're lacking this range of motion here. Uh, this muscle's not doing its thing. This tendon seems like it's you know, problematic. So in general, what I tell people is the way, that our, the way that movement works in the brain is that we actually have maps, as you're, as you're referring to. And the quality, so you have two things, quality and quantity of signals coming from the periphery to the brain. When I injure some, some part of my body, I have usually a decrease in both. I have a decrease in the quantity of signals and I have a decrease in the quality of signals. So our perspective on, on rehabbing any old injury is that we need to go back and fix both those things. Uh, but then you also have to subdivide it because you have sensory signals and you have movement signals. Uh, so whenever we do rehab, you know, I'm looking at someone's knee and maybe they've had knee pain for five years. One of the very first things I ask them is, hey, has anyone looked at the sensation? You know, rub the outside of the knee, rub the top, rub the back, rub the other side compare it to your other knee, does it feel the same? About 80% of the time, people go, no, nah, it doesn't. Exactly, that's one of the problems. Your, if your, scent, your skins, excuse me, if your skin is not sending good information to your brain, it's actually really tough to know where that knee is in space. Yeah. And if your brain can't figure out where your knee is in space, you're setting yourself up for further injury or further dysfunction. So you have to reevaluate and rehab sensation, and then you also have to evaluate and rehab movement. Because ultimately, if we have ongoing decreased information from one area of the body, your brain is so smart, it will compensate for it 
but it will only be able to compensate for it until it can't anymore. You, you eventually run out of compensation, compensation energy. Uh, and then at that point, you're going to have other stuff start to break down. Right. And I, I think it's, you know, what you're saying again, visual mind here, um, the way that we are able to perceive ourselves is through this contact throughout the rest of the world, you know? And so every time you look at a cat brushing its body up against you, copping a feel, what's that cat doing? I think that cat is verifying its existence. You know, it's, it's developing its motor map. It's developing itself. It's like, cool, my hip is connected to here. The only way that you can feel that is through that physical contact. When you are contacting something else, or something else is contacting you, it's a, it's a, it's a dual street. It go, it's going both ways. You're receiving and giving information just the same way. You know, and so important for listeners out there to recognize this and don't be like, you know, little, what's, what's, I don't know, like uh, disconnecting ourselves from the world. Hermit was the word I'm looking for. Like, don't disconnect yourself. Go out, dance, go out, play, do like contact improv. That's probably not for everybody, but you know, rolling yourself around in these weird, funky positions and connecting, like having some, go get massage, go get chiropractic, go get, you know, rolfing, whatever it is, have someone connect and tell you, Hey bud, you have a hamstring back here. Do you know what your sacrum feels like? This thing's been off for the last 10 years. Did you know that? You know, and all that is, it's, it's developing that movement map. Is there anything and, and, you know, correct me on anything if you feel like, eh, or, or, or throw in anything you want, but is there anything that if there's not necessarily like a Z health practitioner around, um, you know, somebody's living in Zimbabwe and you don't have Z health practitioners out there yet. What can people do in Zimbabwe to develop this without specifically is like yoga, Pilates, dance, martial arts. Like what, what, what's, what are options? Yeah. Uh, well you use the most important word, which is play. Um, if you actually, if you, if you look into that field, it's actually growing because we start to realize that play, uh, for all mammals is basically how you're supposed to learn. Uh, and that's one, one of the reasons you look at dogs, cats, whatever, they're still playing throughout their lives. Um, so it, to echo what you said, having physical experiences is really the biggest key. Uh, one of the things we run into in kind of westernized society is everyone thinks that, that play means that you're playing a sport. Uh, and we have a lot of self-consciousness built around, oh my gosh, I'm horrible at this, I'm horrible at that, I'm horrible at that. So all that I really want to do is go to the gym and lift weights because, you know, they're safe and and I don't have to actually look like an athlete there. And so one of the things we emphasize in a lot of our courses is, hey, especially for our professionals is, are you actually encouraging every client to get out of the gym and do something different? Uh, because our interest obviously is movement, but, but brain, right? Brain-based fitness. And one of the things we know about brains is that brains really respond to novelty. When you do things that are new, when you do things that are unique to you, things that are interesting to you, your brain perks up and starts to pay attention and say, hey, this is a little different. What do I need to do to prepare myself in case we do this again? And that's called adaptation, which is what everyone's really looking for. So, you know, someone's stuck in Zimbabwe. And my, my first thing would be, hey, get out, find some trees, run around them, try and climb them, uh, try and jump down from a low branch at first or just hang. Uh, and if you have a focus on moving and challenging yourself with regularity, most people, most great athletes actually figure out the things that they need to figure out on their own. Uh, professionals, all of us in this field, are basically there to fix the, the things that, the, the weird little tweaks that don't go away and we're, you know, for the rest of our clients, we're there to encourage them to move more. 
so I, like I said, I think you already hit on the most important part. Yeah, and then that's that's the big thing that I there's so many practitioners out there that um, and I can't stand these practitioners, but the, there's so many practitioners out there that feel like they have the secret. You know, it's like it's it's like it's just if you don't have this information, which I'm not going to share with you unless you pay me six thousand dollars, whatever it is, you're screwed. You know, you're it's like that is so not true. You know, it's like there are so many different random shotgun approaches that will nip this stuff in the bud. The reason that we go see practitioners is because they're guides, you know, they're teachers, they're instructors, they're, they, they offer us lessons, you know, and if you see somebody and they hold these, these mystical secrets and they don't actually expose what's happening with you, in my opinion, that's not the right person to see. You know, we, 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 should, we should be seeing people as, as guides only. You know, you are the captain of your ship. You know, and it's by seeing somebody like you or seeing somebody like me, it's like we have a compass. <laughs> you know, it's like, so you come see us, it's like, oh, cool. If you just turn 13 degrees that way, you're going to just nail it, man. You know, I yeah. think that's the best way to do it. I have a, a random, random question for you that I might be throwing you under the bus here and you can just say like, oh, I don't know. Um, but I haven't seen you mention anything this yet, but you probably either have or will. Tonality. What is the impact of our tone of our voice and how that impacts the way that we feel, uh, potential pain in our body? And um, the, the thing that fascinates me with it is... I know this because before I, I, I get on any interview with anybody, I sing and I dance and I go do cartwheels in the sun and I do all this weird, weird stuff, you know, but one of the biggest things is expressing my vocal cords. I go through, you know, I go like up and I go down and I explore that full expression the same way that I would exploring a full expression in my physical body, you know, so you mentioned various different maps in our bodies. What about the tonality map and how does that impact various aspects of ourselves? And you could just say, I don't know. <laughs> That's actually a really cool question because one of the things, uh, one of our advanced courses that we teach is really like kind of strange approaches to neurology that we found effective. Um, and whenever you start talking about sound, when you talk about voice, when you talk about uh, basically anything related to the tongue, the jaw, the throat, this kind of goes back to our previous question, right? That we actually have a strong, huge representation uh, in the brain for the jaw, for the tongue. And I believe that one of the reasons for that is that language is a primary tool for survival. Uh, so we need to be very, very good with our ability to articulate. We need to have a great ability to create tone to create different sounds so that we can have language so we can go, hey, dude, let's go hunt this mammoth because we're all going to get hungry. Um, and so... Whenever it comes to tone, uh, one of the things I talk a lot about is when you're creating a sound, you are actually doing cranial nerve activation, right? So if you think about the throat and the tongue, you have cranial nerve 12, you have cranial nerve 9, uh, that also causes some activation, cranial nerve 10. And one of the reasons I think that's really interesting, cranial nerve 10 is the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is a nerve that basically... Uh, connects your nervous system to your heart, your lungs, your diaphragm, and your guts. Uh, and so when we actually are exploring vocal tone, uh, I believe that we're actually also stimulating, in essence, the entire nervous system to some degree. Um, now, on top of all that, whenever we speak, we also hear it, uh, and sound activates the vestibular system, and a lot of people don't know that. Uh, they think that the vestibular system or inner ear only deals with movement, but sound can activate it. Plus, you're also starting to mess around with the frontal lobe and the temporal lobe. Um, so, 
So vocalizations of all sorts uh, and sounds and tones of all sorts, I think, have a really interesting potential. Uh, and I'm going to use another word to potentiate function. Uh, so in other words, and it's interesting because you think about people that you know, many quote unquote high performers tend to have a very vibrant tone if you listen to them. Um, and they're, you know, they tend to be uh, communicators, people that are, a lot of people that move very well also, also have vibrant tones, whether they're high or low, but you can see or kind of sense a richness to them. So that's a, that would be my basic take on that. I love it, man. Love so it, man. It's, it's, it's such a fascinating subject. And, you know, and, and that was kind of what I, where I was hoping you were going to go with that is, is vagus nerve stimulation and your cranial nerves. And, you know, vagus nerve, I believe it's something like 90% of the nervous pathways from the vagus nerve are relating back to the brain. You know, so it's, if there's something going off in the belly, then that will impact your brain. And then you end up like, oh, I feel sad or, you know, whatever it may be. It's like you could feel sad for so many different reasons. You know, again, it's not just because the puppy died. Puppies die. You know, that's a, that's a part of life. You know, it's like there's so many other potential things that could be happening with there. And so we need to be thinking about approaching this through various different approaches. So the tonality is such a fascinating thing. You know, it's, and for me, like having a podcast, it's so fun, you know, because I get to play with all this stuff, you know, or, or I have a reason to play with it rather. And I, I love how you mentioned you hear your voice coming back to you, which once again, it kind of reasserts who you are as a human being. If you talk like this all the time and it's kind of just like, yeah, I totally, I'm, I really, I'm, I, I love, I love this so much. You know, it's like you hear that, you know, you're lying. <laughs> you know, so at, a, so at a biological level, your body hears that, you know, so if you are, are, if you, before a performance, whatever it is, get excited, you know, go sing, go play, go dance, get explosive and dynamic with your voice. And it will impact you at various different cellular levels that you is against the shotgun. You don't know what's happening in there. You don't need to know how to work your iPhone. You just need to know how to press the apps, you know? So if you go and just play blah, you know, you're going to start hitting on this stuff. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to chat with you about as well um, that I'm really fascinated by is strength. Okay, so strength is a skill, 100%. You know, we think of strong people as being like dumb somehow. That is ridiculous. You know, if you are strong, it means you are well-integrated, highly conductive, you know, expansive motor map, you know, all these fancy words. It means that your body is, is, is on, you know, and so the path of turning your body on and recruiting motor units or whatever this terminology is, you know, it's like figuring out how to do that. It's a really fascinating path. One of the things that uh, I believe I've heard you mention is uh, pneumomuscular reflex. So, you know, we're working with uh, activating our bellies, activating our respiratory system, activating our, our sphincters, you know, clenching down in order to create strength in our body. Can you chat on that a little bit? Sure. A couple different, a uh, couple different takes on that. So um, you're absolutely right because when we look at when we look at strength training of any kind, there are basically three primary factors you have to have. And factor number one is just a simple ability to create neuromechanical tension, which basically means that my brain has to tell a muscle to contract, and it has to continue to tell tell that muscle to contract. And if I want to get stronger, I actually have to learn how to create this the skill or build a skill of creating tension. Um, and so whenever you first start working on tension, 
You can do it in a couple different ways. You can do it in a really isolated fashion, or you can add in the rest of the body. Uh, and you know, Pavel Sosselin is probably the guy um, that talked most about this years ago. But this whole idea of irradiation, that if I clench my fist and I clench my fist really hard, I'm actually going to start to feel contraction all the way up into my pecs and my neck. Uh, so whenever we're building, you know, you're looking at a guy who's doing a max deadlift, uh, max bench press, it's a full body exercise because he's actually trying to create as much tension as he can through the body in order to create uh, specific tension to move the, the, the bar. So that's one version of it. Uh, the utilizing breathing as a part of that, there's a couple different approaches. Um, you know, really old school guys used to talk a lot about the Valsalva maneuver where you're holding the breath and tightening everything up as, uh, as much as you can because that's what people do naturally. If you watch someone picking up a, you know, a heavy box or moving a log in the, in the real world, we tend to actually clench, hold our breath while we're trying to exert maximal force. The problem with that is that that may not be the safest thing that you can do <laughs> over, over the course of years. Uh, and so now what we try and get most people to do is a very kind of hard but controlled exhale when they're actually trying to exert maximal tension. Uh, it's a little bit safer than a constant Valsalva maneuver, but in both cases what's happening is you're stabilizing the midline of the body. And one of the things that I need, you know, I'm always trying to get across to people is if you want to have strong arms, strong legs, you actually have to have a very strong midline because the midline is in essence the force conductor. Um, even if you're talking about a baseball pitcher who doesn't look like, hey, he may not look like the strongest guy, but if he's throwing a 95 mile an hour fastball, trust me, there's a lot of strength involved in that. Uh, and a lot of that is actually going to come from the fact that he's very good at stabilizing or controlling the core of his body, but doing it very explosively. Uh, and so, you know, breathing plays a role either under what we would call a grind, like a heavy deadlift, or something explosive like a jab, a cross, or, uh, you know, a tennis serve. Right. And one of the, since we're borrowing from, from Pavel, um, one of the things that he had mentioned that I thought was really cool was uh, thinking of your midsection or, your, you know, your core, I call it your core set if you're speaking about your midsection specifically, just because it's more specific. Core is like, what is a core? You know, I think, I think core is, is, is more of an event that happens in your body. Core is from your toe to the, your, your fingertip. You know, you watch Mike Tyson throw a punch. Where's his core at? You know, it's, it's like his core is his whole entire system. That's core, in my opinion. You know, but speaking of like corset, being more specific with that, um, Pavel, I heard him in one like podcast or something. He was talking about that being like the amplifier of your potential power and your limbs are like your speakers, right? So you have these speakers, boom, boom, boom out here. But if you can grow your biceps up as big as you possibly want, you know, but they're just going to be dumb, dumb tissue until you link it up to the ampli amplification device, which is your midsection. So that, you know, the, 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 the pneumo reflex, you know, the reflex happening in your, in your midsection there, you know, it's like that potentiates that more fuller expression of contraction throughout the rest of the system. And I love that you mentioned irradiation too, because it's such a cool concept. You know, the people don't necessarily really tap into this stuff. And it's just like, man, there's so many little tips and tricks that we can get stronger right now. You know, we just don't do it because we don't push. 
you know, and then right. there's almost like this taboo in our society that like pushing is bad or like, you know, it's like contracting too much or whatever it is. Like, it's, it's very interesting. That it's like, we should push ourselves as much as we possibly can. The big thing is figuring out how to do it safely. If you can figure right. out functional movement patterns, which that's actually a, a trademark name, I think, but if you can figure out functional movement patterns and push through them, that is the, that's the foundation of optimal development. Do you agree yeah. with all that stuff? Yeah, I mean, one of the things, the only caveat I would make to that is, and this is something that I think I've noticed more so over the probably the last decade, um, a lot of the people, especially people that are coming from less athletic backgrounds, um, many of them have what I call a poor contractile map. So just like we're talking about, you have a sensory map, a motor map, you need to be able to feel stuff and move stuff. Uh, when it comes to having someone come in and say, hey, I want you to contract your bicep. Many of them, as you were talking about, you know, they don't know where their pelvis is. They don't know where their lat is. They don't know where their rhomboid is. They don't know where their bicep is. And so we actually do a lot of hands-on coaching in the beginning to go, listen, it starts here and it ends here. Contract it, move these ends closer to, to one another. And all of a sudden people are like, wow, I've never even felt that before. So in essence, I think what we run into very often now is we're actually having to help people to some degree rehab their contractile capacity because it, as you said, it's gone lacking for a long time um, because we've seen physical education move out of schools and most kids don't actually play that much anymore or do PE and do lots of different things with their body. In fact, most of them specialize in sports by the time they're five or six now and that's all that they ever do. Uh, and so you get 20 and 25 year olds, you know, that have never done a pull up. They've never climbed a rope. They've never climbed a tree. Uh, and so it's a, it's an interesting challenge that we're faced with now. Yeah. One uh, of the concepts that I, I, I like, I, I, again, I, I, was, I heard you mention this at one point was the said principle or specific adaptation to impose demands. You know, it's one of the things that I, I riff on all the time is how we are continually practicing day in day out right now as i am talking to you i am practicing being myself you know so i'm rolling on balls i got my foam roller thing underneath here i'm like you can see me i'm like all over the place when i'm talking to you you know because literally it's like this is this is this is the expression that i i prefer you know is is fairly dynamic sometimes kind of ballistic and a little weird you know it's <laughs> but nonetheless it's a practiced effort you know and so yeah. i don't do you have anything in your life that you do to kind of flex the said principle with yourself where you're aware of I'm practicing being me. This is why I do this. <laughs> uh, it's kind of, that's a funny question. Um, well, number one, uh, I train, I do a lot of training daily. I, I mean, I'm sitting at my desk right now as we're talking, but the desk that my computer's on is a, is an electric standing desk. So I go up and down probably like every 15 minutes. Most of the time I raise it, I lower it. Um, we have in our office here, obviously we have a full gym. So everyone that works here basically is training all day, every day. Uh, most breaks are spent playing, doing something, uh, throwing Frisbee. We have all kind of sports stuff here. Um, so for me, because I teach movement and I think about movement and I'm a mover, I try and move all the time, number one. Uh, and it's interesting the way you phrased that though. You said, you know, how do I, how do I practice a said principle to be myself? It's one of the reasons that I still teach a lot. Um, I, I discovered, I guess in the early nineties, whenever I was in practice that I was really much more a teacher than anything else. Uh, and so for the last really 20 years, I've kind of evolved my life to actually give me a chance to do what I feel like I do best. 
which is express information to people, share information with people, teach people to move, teach them to play. Uh, and so I have a really, really good time doing what I do. Awesome. And that's, that's, that's brilliant, man. And I want to make sure, you know, I'm, I'm recognizing time. Is there, are we good for like another 10 minutes or seven minutes or in that realm? All right, cool. Fantastic. Um, one of the other things that I'm curious about is your perspective on the minimum effective dose of movement, uh, of exercise, of just you know, movement in general. I, I, I think they're, they're two different things. You know, when you're in the gym, it should they should merge for sure. But when you're in the gym, I think of oftentimes you know it's more like push really hard, you know. But then I think that what we we really need to recognize is that you're moving 100% of the time. You know, even, even when you're sleeping, what is rapid eye movement? You know, it's like our bodies are dependent on this movement, you know, but what for folks that really do want to go to the gym and they want to, you know, really work on bearing down and doing some lifts, like what's the minimum effective dose and what's the impact of too much? Awesome. Uh, so I'm going to refer back to the, one of the things that you said, which is we need to push, but we need to push safely. Um, so one of the hallmarks of what I teach is this whole idea of that exercise is a drug. And just like any drug, you need the right drug, you need the right dose. Because if you don't give the right drug, uh, number one, that's bad. But you can also have the right drug but take it in the wrong dose, either too little or too much. Uh, if you take too little, you don't get an effect. If you take too much, it can kill you. And exercise, believe it or not, is very much the same way. Uh, so one of the hallmarks of uh of what I do is, especially if I'm working with an athlete, is I'm constantly reassessing their movement. Um, so basically, if you go into a training session, you go to the gym, the whole idea of minimal effective dose is you need to get a baseline. You walk in, you go, hey, how am I moving? I do a little bit of a warm up. How am I range of motion? How's my energy? How's my strength? And then you start your work doing whatever it is that you do. And the point that I'm always trying to make is that the quality of your work in the gym should actually enhance the quality of your movement at the end of the day. Uh, one of the things I hate to see are people, you walk into the gym and they're already moving badly, they do a huge amount of work and then they leave and they're moving worse than when they walked in. That is a recipe for a long-term failure uh, because that's basically overdosing. Uh, because what you'll see is, uh, you know, one of the things, that, it again refers back to what you're saying, is that we're always moving. Um, and I always tell people, you cannot out-train in the gym bad movement habits elsewhere. You just can't uh, because you're in the gym maybe. Let's say you're crazy in the gym. You're there three hours a day. Well, you've got another 14, you know, 12 to 14 hours to screw it up. Uh, so, and, and your body will always adapt to the stuff that you're doing the most. So, like I said, the minimal effective dose concept is basically... I think everyone needs to understand their body well enough to know what feels good, what doesn't feel good. What does good movement feel like? What does bad movement feel like? All your gym work should actually make you move better than, like I said, than when you walked in. Uh, at that point, what you start to recognize is that a lot of people don't work hard enough. They actually never push hard enough to cause any change. So the minimal effective dose works both, both directions. Uh, in our system, we do a lot of gait assessment. We do, like I said, range of motion assessment. We do balance tests. We do a lot of a wide variety of things to get a, a kind of, if you want to call it a neural gauge on what's happening during a training session. Uh, but ultimately, as I said, the end goal is leave moving better than you walked in. So as far as actually like time, what do you think is, is optimal exercise time frame? 
That is a super hard question to answer yeah. um, because there's so many different there's so many different scenarios. Um, on the whole, you know, it, it depends on the type of work that people are doing. Um, but for the the I guess the average gym goer, uh, if I can call anyone an average gym goer, it still comes special. back to your total. What's that? Yeah, special. I'm, we're all special. It, it actually comes back to your threat bucket. Right. Uh, because some days you're going to walk in there and let's say, you know, you just got fired. Your stress levels are much higher, uh, and so, which means that in the gym that day, your reserves of energy may be low enough that you have to take it easy. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's average or best is really based off of, um, in essence, what's going on the rest of your life. So I tell people you really need three different ways to think about your workouts. You have three categories of your general wellness, if you want to call it that. So first is compromised, second is normal, third is optimal. So in, the, in this kind of breakdown, you know, if you are compromised for whatever reason, you're fighting a cold, kids are sick, having a bad day at work, you have to walk in there recognizing your threat levels are higher and you may need to, you can be there for a while, but you may have to decrease your loads. And then I have normal, that's just your everyday walking around state. And then optimal means, man, I've been sleeping well, I've been eating well, Uh, things are going great at work, I'm super happy. The likelihood is that you can push really hard in those kind of training sessions. Um, For myself, I, in terms of an actual gym training session, I tell most people you can get the vast majority of work done that you want to get done in about somewhere between 40 and 45 minutes. Um, Now, for myself, if I'm really training for something, my training sessions would be much more 90 minutes to two hours. Um, but every time I'm training, because of my background, I'm doing sports stuff in the middle of that. So, cool. I just got a couple more questions for you. The one, I assume you're familiar with Brain Gym. Are you familiar with that? It's okay if I, I'm not an expert on Brain Gym, but obviously I've been I've heard of them for years and seen some of their work. Yeah. Yeah. So, so a lot of your work kind of intersects with with that of of Brain Gym, and I don't know a ton about Brain Gym either. I just think it's it's really it's great that they're doing what they're doing. But one of the the relations with that. You know, is how the physical movement in your body impacts your mental cognition, you know, and I wonder if, do you have any experience with potential like learning disabilities or anything happening in the, in the body that could be uh, impacted from our physical movement? Is there some way that we can kind of work from both directions there? Oh, without question, without question. Um, you know, let me, I'll just tell you a quick story of one of uh, the guys who works here in the office. Um, he came to us about six years ago and from his, uh, his brother uh, recommended him, and we first brought him into the company. Um, he was doing some shipping and doing some other stuff for us. And over time, we started to recognize, had a conversation with him. He's like, yeah, he said, you know, I was labeled with a, a learning disability from the time I was really young in school, really struggled through school. Reading was always super challenging for me. Uh, it's like, you know, so I, I had a difficult time understanding things. Um, and so he was, you know, put into a kind of special education curriculum and all kind of crazy stuff, which was weird because speaking to him, he's super, super smart. Like a lot of people that have some kind of label applied to them. Uh, and I, I always approach things by saying, let's eliminate a potential physical problem first. Let's just look at it. So what was the big problem? He said, well, I couldn't read. All right, well, let's watch you read. And then one of the first questions I ask people is, well, when you read, do you get tired? Uh, he's like, oh man, you know, reading kills me. 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and I'm dead. I'm just tired. I'm wiped out for several hours. Uh, and every time I hear that, one of the first things we go, we go and look at is the eyes. 
because in order for your eye, for people to read comfortably, their eyes have to be able to do what's called converge, meaning move to the middle. Uh, and some people have uh, what's called a phoria, which is a muscular condition in the eye where the eyes are pulled outward. And so it's like weightlifting to read, uh, especially if it's no one's ever noticed it, no one's ever trained you. Uh, and so we actually started doing some work with him, uh, sent him to get tested. And at the time he started working here, I think he told me he was like rated at a third or fourth grade reading level. Uh, we got him doing eye exercises. We helped him learn how to converge his eyes, how to move them better. And then from there, kind of relearn the whole reading process. And within a very short period of time, he's reading at, you know, college plus level. And as I said, he was always smart. Right. His problem was an unidentified physical problem that was in manifesting, you know, in something, in some kind of problem that then people labeled a certain way. And this is one of my actual big passions. I think that if we understand the brain more and why I teach people what I call brain-based fitness, I believe that when we understand the brain more, we're much more likely to look a little deeper to try and figure out why something's happening with someone as opposed to just saying, hey, this is what they are. Sure. And I mean, that's like a, a, such a powerful story because we are all walking around with impairments right now. You know, we don't realize what they are, but all of us have blockages. You know, I can go through a, a pretty fairly decent list of blockages that I'm working with with myself. You know, it's sure. like getting into the, just the, the fascination, the excitement of your human experience. That's, that's the magic. You know, it's like, why do, you know, why do my eyes hurt when I read whatever it is? Like, there's probably an answer. <laughs> you know, it's, you seek it out. You know, that's the, that's the whole, that's the whole thing. It's, it's the journey. It's not the destination, you know, but we just need to get excited about this stuff. So I have so much respect for you and so much appreciation for what you're doing and just you delivering this message. You know, it's so cool to get to have you here and kind of just help spread this thing. It's so great. One of the questions that I ask everybody is, um, if you were able to go back to a younger version of yourself, any, any, any age, um, and give yourself some advice and you can't cop out. I don't like this answer of like, everything's great. My mistakes formed who I am. Like, what would you, what would you tell yourself? What kind of advice would you give yourself? No cop out. No cop. No, you won't get that from me on this one. Uh, um, my, my honest advice to myself, uh, it took me until I was probably my late twenties before I really gave myself permission to stop trusting authorities and do my own work. And so if I had advice to give, it would be starting very young, trust your own experiences, run, you know, seek out help, seek out wisdom, but never, never negate your own experiences because someone else says that they're not true. Awesome, man. Uh, and evolution is dependent upon those willing to be different. If we yeah. all act the same, we all stay in the group mentality, we are all going to end up walking off the cliff. <laughs> You know, it's like we keep on marching and marching and marching. It's like step away, take the, you know, the 30,000 foot view and like kind of take a look at what's happening there. See where the crowd is marching. It might be into, you know, it might be off a cliff. You know, so right. I think it's, that's such a, that's such a powerful thing to, to think about is, is really, it's like, it's okay to be different. In fact, it's, it's mandatory. <laughs> so how do people find you? How do, you know, what's, I think you're, again, your information is great. Uh, we already mentioned your site, but what's, what's the best way to, to contact you and, and mention the site again too, please. Yeah. So, uh, the site is zhealtheducation.com. Uh, no dots, no dashes, anything, just zhealtheducation.com. Probably if you have, uh, interest in stuff and you want to talk to people, everyone that works in the office here has done a ton of our courses. 
uh, they're well educated. So um, I actually encourage people to call because we actually still talk to people. Uh, our number, uh, phone number is 888-394-4198. Uh, I'll say it again, 888-394-4198. And then you can also, if you just have email questions, um, you can email info at zhealth.net and uh, someone will uh, get back to you ASAP. Perfect. I love it. I had a ton of fun getting to talk to you, man. I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks. You asked amazing questions. Really, really enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Cool. All right. I'll see you soon. Align Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I greatly appreciate your comments and your shares in iTunes. They determine the ranking and the visibility of the show, and they make me smile. So I look forward to reading those guys. Be sure to check out the website, aligntherapy.com. That's A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you can find my blog. You can find this podcast, more information about the topics and the, and the uh, guests that we've had on the show. You can find hundreds of absolutely free instructional videos on self-care, functional movement, how to get strong, how to get fast, how to get exactly what you want out of your body. You can check out the online coaching where we work work out how to optimize your movement practice so that you can live optimally and pain-free for the rest of your life. As well, be sure to check out the self-care kit where it is as small enough to fit underneath the seat in your car. And it's like a physical therapist and a massage therapist all wrapped up into one package. I know you guys are going to love the website. I know you guys are going to get a lot of value out of it. And I look forward to hearing your comments. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening. And remember to join the movement by subscribing to the podcast. If the information has been helpful, please share and leave your comments in iTunes. Aaron personally reads each one and it makes all the work worthwhile. Together, we will make a difference and continue to bring more powerful and inspiring messages to the world. Align Podcast.